Welcome to The Christian Outlook, the weekly radio program that sorts through the issues in our fast-changing world in a way that honors your Christian faith. Brought to you in partnership with our sponsor, the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. This week, the Surgeon General of the United States issues a report on the impact of social media. Every step that social media has taken as it has evolved has been sort of at the expense of the mental health of our young people. We'll look at the digital diet so many of our youth are eating. You look at this and you recognize that as human beings, we are not made to be bombarded with all of this darkness. And that's true whatever age we are. And the impact it's having on them. They have no community that can come alongside them and encourage them to say, this is who I see you to be. And so this is the loneliest generation I think we have seen in humanity because of what we're seeing with social media. I'm Scott Furrow. Great to be with you today. I'm the host of the Pastor Scott Show, heard Monday through Friday in Southern California. I'm coming to you from my home station of KKLA in Los Angeles. You can catch my program each day through our live stream at kkla.com and also through the TuneIn radio app. Take a moment now to follow the Christian Outlook on Twitter at TC Outlook. That's TC Outlook. Thanks for joining us. Social media and youth mental health, the U.S. Surgeon General's advisory. That was the title of the recent publication from Dr. Vivek Murthy. The very fact that the Surgeon General, in partnership with public health agencies across the government, is issuing a warning on the health impact of digital apps on our handheld devices should have our attention. Sarah Zilstra is a mother herself and an editor with the Gospel Coalition. She was a guest of John Hall and Kathy Emmons on Word 101.5 FM in Pittsburgh. Social media. Even the Surgeon General is talking about it. He is, right? We love it. We also hate it. And, of course, if we love it and hate it, that means our kids are in the same boat. But the Surgeon General, as Kathy just said, has some warnings about it. You're here today to talk about that and a gospel-centered approach to social media. That's right. So... The Surgeon General issued a warning, and this, I'm going to quote from it. I think this is great. He said, the most common question parents ask me is, is social media safe for my kids? And the answer is that we don't have enough evidence to say it's safe. And in fact, there is growing evidence that social media use is associated with harm to young people's mental health. Mm -hmm. Children are exposed to harmful content on social media, ranging from violent and sexual content to bullying and harassment. And for far too many children, social media use is compromising their sleep and valuable in-person time with family and friends. We are in the middle of a national youth mental health crisis, and I'm concerned that social media is an important driver of that crisis. That is everything I just said is a quote from him. This is remarkable to me because, I mean, we've been talking about and hearing from the government about our, our mental health crisis among our youth, but this is the first time there's been that sort of open connection, um, that they've made to social media. That's good. I'm, I'm glad to hear this. I mean, mama, don't let your children grow up to be social media influencers or take on social media. Because if you if you had kids, Sarah, who never logged on to social media, as opposed to kids who spend 6, 8, 10, 12 hours a day on social media, I'm sure there'd be very stark differences between their happiness and their mental health. There would be an enormous difference in their happiness. They would be, it's just it's crazy when you look at the numbers of depression, um, suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, anxiety, loneliness, sleep deprivation. All of that starts spiking in our kids, especially in our like 10 to 16 year old girls. 
around the like 2007 to 2010 range, which is not connected with anything else that you can think of in our society, except of course, this major social change of us all carrying social media around in our pocket. Right. And uh, years ago, when the iPhone uh, first came into being, I mean, this was known then because, you know, Apple executives would say, no way my kids are getting an iPhone. So they knew in the infancy how that was bad for you. Yep, exactly right. And it hasn't gotten better as time has gone on. When you think about the way that it's evolved, um, the news feed and the like button that we know sort of acts like a like a mini slot machine for us, mm-hmm. um, the way that um, there's so much comparison with the way we even take pictures of ourselves and which ones we choose to post online, and um, it's sort of a race to see who can get so many likes or fire emojis on their pictures. Um, every step that social media has taken as it has evolved has been, of course, more economically viable for them. They're trying to make money. We have to remember it's a business. But it's also just been sort of at the expense of the mental health of our young people. That's good. You know, uh, you see from time to time uh, groups of kids, you know, who say, we're going to do this as, you know, a friend unit that we're not going to engage on social media. Sort of like, you know, kids going back and espousing, a, you know, a Luddite tra- uh, way of life. Yeah. And that kind of makes sense because, I mean, we're talking about it from, you know, 10,000 feet. But if you're 15, 16, 17, whatever, and you're in the trenches there every day, you know, in the classroom, you've got to go into, everybody knows your business, you know everybody else's business. It's got to crush your life. Yep. Um, I also want to mention these things because I think they're really important. I think there's a couple false promises that social media makes to us. And one of them I think is the promise of omniscience, that you can know everything and be everywhere and, you know, sort of be like God in that way. Mm-hmm. Um And I think since that isn't true and we're limited, then I think that brings us anxiety because we, because even scrolling the news feed, even just knowing all those things brings us anxiety because we're not equipped to know all that stuff all the time. And I think the other false promise it makes us is that we can be the influencer. We can be the God or goddess that people want to envy or emulate. We can be sort of the standard, right? That we would want people to be like us. And I think that too, it puts us in the place of God falsely. And I think that brings us anxiety and it's just a giant mess because you actually, if you think about it, you don't want people to be like you. You're a sinful, broken person. We can't pattern our lives after each other. We can sharpen each other and walk alongside each other, but we can't pattern our lives after each other. Yes, there is a tendency to see the lives of others on social media as somehow better or happier than our own, whether that be from one's friends or those in celebrity culture. But there is also a very easily discernible pattern. Social media apps reinforce the negative. Here's Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast. Many people in the United States and elsewhere know that we are facing a huge challenge when it comes to social media. And we know, honestly, that that's true for adults. We understand as adults just how addictive, and for that matter, how seductive and dangerous so much of what appears in social media can be. We understand how difficult it is to differentiate between truth and reality. We also know that there are certain things we simply don't need to see. There are certain things it would be sin for us to see. And yet when it comes to some platforms and social media, it turns out that they basically run on something that can only be described as absolute adrenaline-filled temptation. And central to that is TikTok. And that's why a very important essay appeared yesterday 
This one was at the Wall Street Journal. It's by Julie Jargon in the family and tech column of that newspaper. The headline, TikTok feeds teens a diet of darkness. Now, I started out by saying that I think it's important that adults recognize just how seductive this is for us. We understand just how fast one can fall into a rabbit hole with social media. We understand just how much like some kind of addictive substance these very short videos can capture our attention. And, of course, there's just one more, and it leads to even more. And the feed is populated with even more. And the next thing you know, you have just seen 75 puppy videos. But if they were really all puppy videos, we wouldn't be having this conversation. There are much, much darker narratives in social media. There are much, much darker messages that are being sent out, particularly on TikTok with effects on teens. As Julie Jargon reports, quote, a recent study found that when researchers created accounts belonging to fictitious 13-year-olds, they were quickly inundated with videos about eating disorders, body image, self-harm, and suicide. Now, just remember that the Wall Street Journal is a pro-business publication. TikTok's a business. But when it comes to this business, the Wall Street Journal's been onto it for some time. Back in 2021, the newspaper ran an investigation which, quote, found that TikTok steers viewers to dangerous content, end quote. We're then told that TikTok since then has, in some sense, strengthened parental controls, and the company went on to promise, quote, a more even-keeled algorithm. But in this case, Julie Jargon goes on to report that current evidence is that the company is still sending all kinds of dark messages to American adolescents, indeed what she calls a diet of darkness. These researchers went to these accounts and for 30 minutes at a time documented the kind of material directed to the accounts. Remember that these accounts were set up as teenagers, even as 13-year-olds, and the material directed to them, well, according to this study, If researchers, and again, they were posing as adolescents, if they paused at all on matters about mental health, then TikTok, quote, almost immediately recommended videos about suicide and eating disorders. Quote, videos about body image and mental health popped up on the account's For You pages every 39 seconds, end quote. TikTok says it's taking responsibility to moderate its content, and yet the standards by which that content is moderated They're not going to be the standards that I think should be, at least I hope they would not be, the standards that would be expected by America's parents, particularly Christian parents. You look at this and you recognize that as human beings, we are not made to be bombarded with all of this darkness. And that's true whatever age we are. It is warping to the personality. It is corrosive to the soul. We were not made to saturate ourselves and just to marinate ourselves in this kind of darkness. But The rabbit holes that are warned about in this particular study are rabbit holes into which young people are falling. And in many cases, they're falling right down the hall. They're falling perhaps even there in the family room sitting on the couch. I just want to remind parents, you are responsible for your children. You're responsible for setting the rules. You're responsible for what technology they have and they do not have. You would not, as children and young adults, encourage them to go and play in the traffic, but that's effectively what is taking place in social media. And even if it is sight unseen to you, and that's really the point, isn't it? It's all the more dangerous because it is sight unseen to you. The minds of many of our children and young people are being marinated in this darkness, and all kinds of messages are bombarding them that would be very difficult for any adult to take. Indeed, would be toxic for any adult to digest as well. 
And here's the thing. We're doing this to ourselves. One of the most interesting comments I heard just recently in the media was the fact that many young people said, as according to a major media report, they simply said, I would prefer to have the time with TikTok rather than to be forced to spend time with family or even to spend time with friends. Because the effect of so much social media is anything but socialization. And when you think of the rise and fall of civilizations, you tend to think of vast economic, political, cultural movements, the marching of armies, the winning and the losing of battles. But what if it turns out that the decline and fall of our civilization has everything to do with the transition from puppy videos to eating disorder videos and worse. Coming up. They have no community that can come alongside them and encourage them to say, this is who I see you to be. And so this is the loneliest generation I think we have seen in humanity because of what we're seeing with social media. More on the impact of social media in the next segment of The Christian Outlook. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow, host of The Pastor Scott Show. Thanks for joining us today as we look deeper into the issues surrounding social media usage among our youth. One of the challenges facing parents and Christian leaders today is the simple fact that they do not realize the extent to which their young people are on social media. 95% of youth aged 13 to 17 are on social media, and many are on social media upwards of five hours a day. In a sense, though, many of our young people are always on, as they only go moments before checking their phones again. I turned to a young man named Ryan Miller, who is on a mission to help. He's founded a nonprofit called Share the Struggle. We'll pick up with his description of what they do. What we did is we created these courses, and we got the world's leading Christian experts on topics like anxiety, grief, um, addiction, all of these different things, trauma, shame, and we compiled Christian therapists, Christian neuroscientists like Dr. Caroline Leaf, Rebecca Lyons, Matthias Barker, just some really heavy hitters in these um, spheres of influence. And we just said, hey, let's come together and let's create a central hub for the church where people can come and learn how to manage their struggles, but not only have a framework for how to manage their struggles, have a community of people around them that they can share the struggle with. And so right now we're kind of rolling this out to churches. And every church we've gone to now has said, yes, please, how soon can we get this? Yeah. And so we're starting to roll this out to a lot of churches in the San Diego area. And um, we're seeing, funny enough, we're, we're seeing non-believers show up to these meetings on anxiety. And they don't care that it's at a church. They just want to learn how to stop having panic attacks. Right. And when they get there, they not only get tools for how to stop their panic attacks, for how to feel a little bit of relief, but they get Jesus. Can you give us a little bit of an example? So somebody, uh, you're talking to a young person, and I think we we speak a lot today, and especially maybe if you're a little older. So many things have changed. I don't know, if you're under 40, it's a much different world than if you're over 40. You 
you, if you're over 40, certain age, you didn't have social media and the pressures that that mm-hmm. brings. It didn't exist. Yeah. You know, you went out and played with your friends. I'm from a generation where I left the house, you know, in the morning and my parents had no idea where I was and couldn't reach me if something would happen to me. Uh, now you have a, a, a generation where everybody knows where you are. There's all kinds of, of pressure. What's the typical story from somebody who reaches out uh, to you? Yeah, I think I think the typical story is I don't know how to stop what I'm feeling right now. Hmm. And I believe it's it's hard to even describe it because the only word I think is, is ubiquity. There is this and that what that word means is is this general connectivity with everything without fully being connected to anything. Mm. And so you have these young people who are constantly on their phones that the the stats on phone usage post COVID is ridiculous. You know, we're talking eight to ten hours a day. And we know what that does to your brain. It it sends your brain into anxiety. And so you've got these kids who are medicating with the same thing that caused their anxiety in the first place. And they're not only medicating with something that just caused anxiety, they're medicating with something that causes them to compare themselves to everybody and yet connect with nobody. And yet here they are. We all have these comparison machines in our pocket and that are meant to addict you. And so you're scrolling, looking at um, all of the things that will trigger your greatest wounds. If you're a young girl who's struggling with body image issues, well, gosh, you're probably going to see a lot of stuff that's going to trigger body image issues. If you're, you know, like me, I was addicted to pornography for 10 years. I couldn't shake it. And and when did I relapse? It was typically when I was scrolling Instagram. And so we have a generation of young people who are lost and have no moral framework. They have no bedrock foundation to say, this is who I am as a person. And they have no community that can come alongside them and encourage them to say, this is who I see you to be. And so this is the loneliest generation I think we have seen in humanity because of what we're seeing with social media, because of what we're seeing with cell phone use. So for this generation, what is the best way to reach out? So a lot of people listening are young people, uh, but there are also people listening who are parents who are worried about connecting with their kids and grandparents Mm -hmm. who are worried about their grandkids. what would you say is a really good way to, to reach out to our kids, to our grandkids, to people that we know, even our friends who might be struggling? Yeah, I think, I think there's a couple things. I think in terms of, um, if I were to speak to the, the parents and the grandparents, I think young people are longing for structure. Uh, they don't feel structure in their lives. Um, from a moral standpoint, from a you know, even even the school systems, there's a lot of lies being told right now. And, um, you know, rules rules without relationship equals rebellion. It's why countries rebel against dictators and kids rebel against parents. But rules with relationship equals a response. And I think what they're longing for is they're longing for parents to enter into the confusion of this culture and this generation and this time and in their lives and to be intimate with their children to ask the right questions. And then at the same time, hold the line. Um, right. And I think that is that is what children are longing for. And they will lash out and they'll, they'll say, you're being too hard on me. You're doing this. You're doing that. And in reality, that's what they're craving. It's what they're screaming for. So that's what I would say. I think the second thing kids are longing for is they're longing for belonging. And so they're, they're running to all the different places in this world where there's this kind of false sense of belonging and not ever feeling that true hope. And so I think children are... are kids at, at their core are longing for the gospel. 
They're longing for someone to see them in all of their mesh and still say, I want you and I love you. How does your organization reach out to these these kids? I say kids, you know, and we're talking about people who are adults, you know, often. How do you do it? How have you been able to do that? You've got uh, half a million followers online, so it's it's working. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think this younger generation really connects with authenticity. And um, we try to lead people to our website, which is sharethestruggle.org. And at sharethestruggle.org, what you're going to find is you're going to find a bunch of different courses that are still being created right now. We do have a couple courses that have been created already, one on anxiety, one on miscarriage. Um, and really, we want to give people practical tools and handles to grab onto to be able to heal from these hard things that have happened in their past. Uh, we have a course on trauma we're editing right now, one on shame, one on pornography addiction, um, and one on grief and loss of a loved one. And um, really what we see Jesus doing, it's the first scripture Jesus quoted, which is, I have come to bind up the brokenhearted. He quotes Isaiah to set the captives free. So he has He has come as, as our great physician. And, you know, um, Jesus took care of people's needs. They, he took care of their basic needs. And, and he... And, and he loved them in the middle of, of their hunger and their sin and their brokenness. And then he, he told them to come and follow him. And so that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to meet people in the middle of their pain and give them a hand to hold. Um, and, you know, even communities and churches, we are trying to have these share the struggle groups in every church in America. That's my hope is that is, you know, and even if you're listening right now and you're like, my church needs this, you can email me directly at Ryan at share the struggle.org. Um, and we want to get churches connected because this is the bride of Christ. And we believe the church needs to be the place that gives people these opportunities to not only heal and have these tangible tools to heal from their struggles, but with the gospel infused in every single part of it. And so this is not just simple therapy. This is not just simple breathing techniques for anxiety. This is not simply just slapping a uh, Bible verse on a, a bullet hole, you know, wound. Right. This is this is all of it. This is saying this is what Jesus has called us to do. He came to bind up the brokenhearted, then He called us to do the same. Coming up, it has a deep effect on all of us, and it's shaping us to be people that maybe we never intended to be. We'll continue on the impact of social media when the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Hi, it's Mike Gallagher. I start every day by reading through the stories at Daybreak Insider. In just 10 minutes, I can zip through 10 stories that help me start my day and help shape where I go with The Mike Gallagher Show. Over a quarter million people get Daybreak Insider by email daily, and it's available to you at no cost. Go to daybreakinsider.com and simply plug in your email. That's daybreakinsider.com. In five minutes, you will be the most informed person in the office. That's daybreakinsider.com. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook, brought to you in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. I'm Scott Furrow. Why is it that on social media, our interactions and our comments are so much more harsh and direct than how we interact with people in real life? In many respects, digital online life generally and social media more particularly has normalized a meanness that is often really just cruelty. John Hall and Kathy Emmons saw this with how death is handled in social media. We're going to go back a bit here. It was February 2021 when Rush Limbaugh died. They turned to John James, an editor with Crossway. He did a piece at the time titled Ill of the Dead, 
at the beginning of your piece, Samuel, you talked about Rachel Held Evans, who was a progressive theologian, writer, uh, thinker, who passed away about a couple of years ago. And people were kind of comparing her death to Rush Limbaugh's death. And you saw one commenter in particular who said, look, if you're someone who is lamenting the death of Rush Limbaugh and you didn't lament the death of Rachel Held Evans, then you're part of the problem. And what you said here is so insightful. You say, I, I, I guess I understand what this person was trying to say, but I don't think I've ever seen a tweet that exemplified better the dysfunctional and odious effects of social media on the human experience. Samuel, talk about how death is, you know, discussed and related to in real life versus online. Yeah, I think for a few years, I've just noticed that social media has a tendency to disrupt our humane responses to tragedy, and this is true whether it's the death of an individual or an accident or a shooting, something like that. And in the wake of these tragic events, social media just has a tendency to reward kind of inhumane responses. And you know, if if you can remember, if anybody can remember what life was like before social media, if if somebody that you didn't care for, a public figure or a celebrity of some kind, passed away and you heard about it, you may have had a thought or two, but it didn't consume your emotions. You just kind of let it go. But it feels like today there's a reward system in place with social media for people who are willing to kind of channel their negative emotions as effectively as possible because this resulted in more addictive behavior on the websites and that's profitable for them. But beyond social media, our normal human response to death is to just be silent and to contemplate our own mortality. And I think that's the proper, that's the Christian response, not kind of trying to score points or compare notes with other people to feel better about yourself or your tribe. And I think that's one of the worst effects of social media on our discourse today. Yeah. And, and, you know, as you read these comments, which, you know, you try not to, I try not to, but of course you fall into this. I often think to think, who raised these people? What were their Mm -hmm. parents talking to these people about as they were kids growing up? Because clearly all social mores have been abandoned where people just kind of think they can say any ugly, disgusting thing about someone who's passed away. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point. And in a lot of cases, you know, sometimes maybe the, the parents weren't able to be as involved with their children's use of technology. And that's something that's would probably be true of my parents. You know, my parents have talked to me as an adult and said, you know, we didn't know how this kind of stuff was shaping you when you were a teenager and, and how your your heart and your mind were kind of being invaded by this kind of technology. And I, I think you can raise a child to understand certain kind of principles and, and ethical decorum, but social media is its own thing and social media is constantly forming us. And so if you're on these websites and you're kind of using them as an outlet for self-expression, that's having a deep effect. It has a deep effect on all of us. And it's shaping us to be people that maybe we never intended to be. Uh, Another thing uh, that I really appreciated in your piece, Samuel, you said, quote, I just don't think we're conscious enough of how internet life has created illegitimate categories of thought that are not just illogical, but emotionally destructive. Let me say that again. It is emotionally destructive to cultivate the kind of habits that go into keeping track of who is mourning which dead person on Twitter. If you could have had a time machine and read that sentence you wrote to yourself 15 years ago, you would have been like, when did I lose my mind, right? <laughs> it's hard to believe that that's a sentence that needs to be spoken or written. 
Well, a lot's changed. And I think most people feel that there's nowhere to hide and there are systems in place and a, a kind of cultural ethos, if you will, that just rewards this type of feeling. And it's so emotionally destructive because you know there's going to be a time for all of us, whether by choice or the impossibility of using these services, that we're not going to be online all the time. But the effects that this is having on us of just reading this kind of stuff and then internalizing it, and it feels righteous in the moment, and so we want everybody to see how right and how you know real, quote unquote, we are. And we are going to be the ones stuck with those effects on our heart. So it is incredibly emotionally destructive. There's very few things worse than the inability to lament. And that is what social media is very destructive toward, the ability to lament. And it's a very, very destructive place to be for individuals and for a culture. Coming up. Could you or someone in your life give up social media? I have not missed it for one hot second. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. As the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy celebrates our 25th anniversary year, please watch our new promotional video based on Ronald Reagan's 1976 radio address, Shaping the World for 100 Years to Come, on our Pepperdine SPP YouTube channel. And if you know someone who's thinking about graduate school this fall, we welcome applications at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. That's publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. Welcome back to The Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. I recognize that you've heard quite a bit today about the dangers, the pitfalls, and the negative impact of social media today on our young people. But the negative impact is not limited to teenagers. Yes, they may be more acutely impacted, but the social media machine is perfectly happy to eat up as much of your time and your wholeness as it can, regardless of your age. We're going to return to Sarah Zilstra. She was our first guest today talking about the report from the Surgeon General. In an earlier conversation with Brian Fromm and Steve Cobble, she talked about her column, Why I Left Social Media and Won't Go Back. From AM 1160, Hope for Your Life in Chicago. Why are you leaving social media? What made you get to that decision? Yeah. So this past year in 2022, I did a podcast that was called Scrolling Alone. And it was about Gen Z girls and how they use social media. And I could see how tangled up they were in it and how much it took from them and how little it gave back. And that allowed me to finally see that it was doing the same thing to me. Mm. Um, and that was the kick that I needed. We uh, research shows, my own research, my own limited research shows, you, we almost all need a kick if we're going to actually leave social media. And that was my kick for me mm. to see, oh boy, um, this, isn't, this isn't giving me what I think it is. And it's taking so much more than I realize. Mm. Sarah, I just, I'm curious, in what ways do you think it is kind of changed and changed for the worse? Yeah. So when I first got on, it was kind of at the beginning of the news feed um, that came pretty early, but that's something that changed social media a lot. Instead of going to your friends' pages, Facebook was serving that up to you. And you'll probably notice if you ever look at your news feed, there's more and more advertisements in it, and it's more and more driven by an algorithm. Yeah. So way back in the day when I was just friends with, I don't know, 50 or 100 people or whoever were my actual friends, I would just literally see chronologically what they were putting up. But now I don't see what they're putting up. I would just be seeing what the algorithm is giving me, like, maybe you want to look at this, or here's an ad, or here's 
um, an art, uh, somebody else's post that's getting a lot of engagement keeps popping up over and over and over again. And so it didn't feel like I was connecting with my friends. It felt more, Facebook felt more and more like there was a medium in between us that was mm. choosing what we were looking at. Yeah. Yeah. Have you missed it at all? What's been the result in your life? Are you, are you finding greater peace and less anxiety or are you like, Oh, I wish I was able to hop on Facebook or Instagram right now. <laughs> Good question. I want, that's one thing that I worried the most about before, because when you delete your accounts, you, you know, if you come back, you have to find all those people again. So it's, mm. kind of, it's like, Oh, this is going to be a lot of work. If I decide I don't like it and have to come back on, that's one thing that kind of held me back. I have not missed it for one hot second. I've been off now for since March. So how like eight months or nine months. Wow. March. So I have lived through the summer. I lived through my birthday. I lived through the holidays, all these different things where you think you're going to be touching base with people and you are, um, but I have not missed it at all. And the reason isn't that I'm not missing things because I am, I am missing when people put up their Christmas pictures. But what I have received back in terms of a greater attention span, much more energy, um, the disappearance of kind of that low level anxiety that I was, I didn't even realize I was feeling till it was gone. Mm -hmm. um, the ability to focus on my Bible more, the ability to read longer articles and books, the ability to be interested in my kids and my family, um, the ability to think longer and more complex thoughts, even about like how my household should run mm. or about, you know, something we're tackling at work or just the ability to engage in those things. I just feel like it has given me a boost or it's like when somebody, you know, you're driving along, but the brakes are on or something, you know, <laughs> and like all of a sudden you lift those off and you're like, Oh, I can go so much faster and easier when the brakes are off. Mm -hmm. Sarah, one of the things that I talk often with my wife about and, um, and it, it's really, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to, my wife, I, I'm like, she's beautiful. She's uh, 30, 30 years old. She's got my little guy. She's, she bounced back from pregnancy. Um, <laughs> like nobody's business. Um, you know, I've, I've fluctuated more in weight than, than <laughs> uh, but like just the, the spirit of comparison just seems to be like, and, and maybe I, I'm guessing that it's, it's for men as well, but for women, it seems like that, that spirit of comparison is just like nonstop with whether it be somebody bouncing back from pregnancy or how somebody's life is going, who's doing what. Can you speak to that, the way social media creates the spirit of comparison? Absolutely. Um, and I would say that comparison uh, not only drags you down, it makes you feel lonely because mm. um, it's it's taking a friendship and turning it into something that's far more shallow and more competitive than if I was sitting in a room with your wife and we had a real life relationship, we'd see so much more of each other just as a holistic person. Mm. You can You can trace in the statistics the sharp increase in teen girls' persistent sadness and loneliness. And it just traces right with the smartphone and social media. So there is data behind it that literally when you are on, when a woman is on social media and you're right, it affects girls. You can see in the data as well, the boys are going up a little, but the girl increase is just sharp and straight up. 60% of teen girls persistently feel sad and lonely. And mm. these girls are on like five social media platforms. So you'd think from the face of it, they're more connected with people than ever before. And yet they don't 
feel connected with anybody. They Mm. feel like they're alone by themselves. You're right. They're comparing themselves with other people. And that goes, it's bad in two respects. One, you can feel like, wow, I look way better than she does or (laughs) way more together than she does. Or you can feel like I'm a mess. I'm a failure. I'll never have anything that looks as good as she does. Mm -hmm. So either way, it's not good for you. And I, and I want to be clear, like God made us to live in relationship, to look at other people, to kind of see, oh, are you doing it like this and get good ideas from people? But when that's built inside a real life community, girls around your table, girls out to coffee together, and you sort of get the whole perspective, there's just such a depth to that that takes yeah. out the sting of the comparison and, and empowers and wraps in love and encourages along in a way that just looking at someone else's living room that they shove the toys out of. So it looks really clean and perfect. Yeah. Um, that's just you comparing your real life to someone else's fake life. That's right. And mm-hmm. even though we know we're doing it, it still affects us emotionally. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, Sarah, last question. Let's put you on the spot. Uh, I, totally the reasons you've left and the results are encouraging and they're inspiring. Should the people listening get off their social media accounts? What, you know, what would you tell them? Is it you need to get off or is it, Hey, you, I understand why you stay, but here's some guardrails for you. What would you say to people who are like, I don't know what I think about this. When I look at the numbers, I would just say that I don't know. There would be a rare woman who would be able to be on there in a healthy way. Coming up, social media as a competitor to God's word. It's that ever-present noise that just crowds out God's word, crowds out our prayers, that crowds out the Holy Spirit. When the Christian Outlook returns in a moment. Tuning into the baseball game, monitoring the incoming storm, catching your favorite talk show. These are just a few of the reasons more than 80 million Americans depend on AM radio each month. And did you know AM radio is the backbone of the emergency alert system, keeping us safe in dangerous times? It's reliable, free, and public safety depends on it. Text AM to 52886 and tell Congress we need AM radio in cars. This message furnished by the National Association of Broadcasters. Don't you forget about me. Welcome back to the Christian Outlook. I'm Scott Furrow. If you or someone in your life is an active user of social media, I recognize that going cold turkey, so to speak, may be a bit too much and a bit too abrupt. So how about a 10-day fast? That's the challenge that comes from James Spencer. He's the president of the D.L. Moody Center. He calls it Go Dark, Shine Bright. He explained to Bill Bunkley on Faith Talk WTBN in Tampa. As you know, Boy, the negative spiritual things that are there, the serious mental health problems, not only to children and adults. Well, you've got something called the Shine Bright Project, which a subset of that is coming up. Go dark, shine bright. Take us through this initiative. Yeah, when we came up with the Go Dark, Shine Bright program, what we were really trying to do was figure out how to start a new prayer movement. And uh, what we ultimately came to was, you know, prayer is competing with, shopping on Amazon or scrolling through Facebook or, you know, posting on Instagram, you know, doing whatever people do on TikTok. And so what we decided was that we needed to sort of clear a space for God's people to focus on prayer, to fix their eyes on Jesus. And so we decided to do a 10-day challenge where people would get off social media. Mm-hmm. Um, we ran it last year. Last May was our inaugural sort of uh, campaign. 
And uh, we had over 20,000 participants enroll and participate in the 10-day social media fast. And so the campaign really is just about helping people understand how to step away from their devices, re-engage with God and others, and to uh, be empowered by the Holy Spirit and prepared by the Holy Spirit to share their faith as they go back onto social media platforms after the 10-day fast. I think there's a there's a lot of wisdom in stepping away from the noise. There are some there have been some studies out recently that talk about the the decision making processes that we have, the judgments that we make, and how they're clouded when we're in the midst of noise. And so the way I usually like to illustrate for people is if you think about you know reading maybe even the Bible during a rock concert, that's going to be really difficult. It's going to be hard for you to focus on what it is that you're reading because you've got all this other noise and all this other sensations coming in at you from all around you. There's just a barrage on your senses, and you're not going to be able to focus on what it is that you're reading. And so as we think about that sort of an analogy, essentially social media can become that rock concert. It's that ever-present noise that just crowds out God's Word, crowds out our prayers, that crowds out the Holy Spirit— and it keeps us from making really great, good decisions for the Lord. Mm. And so I think as we look at Go Dark, Shine Bright, it's just about finding a quiet place where we can learn from the Lord, where we can come together in prayer, and where we can begin to make really good decisions that, are going to, that God is going to be able to use. That concludes our program today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, make sure to mention it to a friend. You can find this special episode at ChristianOutlook.com. While you're there, take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Our program has been brought to you in part through our partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. For executive producer Russell Shubin and producers David Pushon and Wilbert Flores, I'm Scott Furrow. Join us again next time for The Christian Outlook. When I grow up, I want to work for a woke company. Like super woke. When I grow up. When I grow up, I want to be hired based on what I look like. Rather than my skills. I want to be judged by my political beliefs. I want to get promoted based on my chromosomes. When I grow up, I want to be offended by my coworkers and walk around the office on eggshells and have my words policed by HR. Words like grandfather, peanut gallery, long time no see, no can do. When I grow up, I want to be obsessed with emotional safety and do workplace sensitivity training all day long. When I grow up, I want to climb the corporate ladder. Just by following the crowd. I want to be a conformist. I want to weaponize my pronouns. What are pronouns? It's time to grow up and get back to work. Introducing the number one woke-free job board in America, redballoon.work.